podcast is brought to you by Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome all you QT faithful to your 14th Tarantino Bible study, where each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of the major scenes from this month's movie. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to once again welcome back to the show, making his second appearance, the host of the Spectre Cinema Club podcast, Mr. Devon Taylor. And together we will be taking a deeper look at the Gospel of Tarantino as we turn to the book of the Hateful Eight, Chapter 11, The Death of Charles and Sandy Smithers scene. Welcome back, Mr. Taylor, and may Tarantino be with you always. And with you, you son of a bitch. Thank you for uh, having <laughs> me back. I'm uh, I'm I'm stoked uh, to to go into uh, do one of these. Uh, I, I really like uh, the idea of you know really taking a full episode to break down a scene and all the little intricacies. And I mean, with Tarantino, I mean you, you got to because there's just too many details. <laughs> like the the first thirty minutes of this movie, I forgot like how much information it is thrown at you, and I was like, oh yes. shit, goddamn. I was like, this is a lot. <laughs> Speaking of details, since you last were on, your podcast has changed names. Now, has it changed just names or has it changed host and format? Uh, no. Um, so um, same, same format. Uh, my buddy Garrett McDowell still hosting it with me in an evolution of uh, things with the brand in general. So uh, first step was a podcast name change. And then uh, we got some uh, some announcements coming in 2023 that we're excited about. So oh, nice. it was uh, just the first uh, step to kind of since Garrett did get added into the show like um you know about 40 episodes ago like uh, the show since then has very much changed so uh, we wanted something that uh, was a little bit more of both of us so Spectre Cinema Club sleek sexy ghosty 
we we love it. I just wanted to make sure because I mean, you were just on Django, although we recorded a couple of months back, but you were just we on did. Django last month, about a month and a half when people hear this, and I said you're in the bloody blunt cinema ah, club, and now you're on the spectrum, and they're like, what the fuck's going on? I mean, the, so, I mean, it's all good, because the podcast feed didn't change at all or anything, so if people yeah. subscribe to that, then it just, uh, then they saw a new, uh, a, new little, name. Uh, a little name in their, in their inbox, like, ooh, a little surprise, what, what's this? <laughs> you gotta keep them guessing, keep them guessing, keep them on their toes. Yeah, don't let them know your next move. That's a perfect segue oh into God, this really scene. <laughs> and now it's time to open your Tarantino Bibles to the book of the Hateful Eight, chapter 11, the death of Charles and Sandy Smithers scene. Now, this scene starts off, and as I've said before, it is chapter 11, and it's the full chapter, but it's chapter 10 that kind of leads us in, and what really kind of, I think, starts the events of what was going to happen. I don't know that Warren had it in his mind that he was going to kill Charles Smithers when he showed up and when he found out it was him. But it's the moment that happens prior to him coming over and sitting down with him that I think, and I'll get into as we get through the scene, that made this necessary. Mm. Right before this scene starts, Chris Mannix has just outed him as being a liar and that the Lincoln letter that enraptured John Ruth so much Mm -hmm. was a fake. Yeah. And so when that scene ends, that part of that scene ends, he gets up, grabs his stone, goes over and sits across from him. And actually, we also then have Bob the Mexican, who I absolutely love Damon Bashir in this, who, as I said in the main podcast, is the only member of the Domingue gang there to help free Darmagu that is actually bought into who his character is. Like, he really is buying into the fact that he is taking care of minis. Like, he's plucking chickens. Like, he's doing it all. Like, he does all the hard, <laughs> heavy labor work. But he sits down to play piano, and he's playing Silent Night. Now, there is a fan theory out there, and I'm not sure if you've heard this, that Bob plays this song specifically to taunt General Smithers that his death is near. How do you feel about this theory? Well, the thing that I got out of it was, I mean, it, I mean, possibly, um, because obviously we know that uh, Mexican Je- or the Mexican is in on it, and the the only thing that I that I caught was uh, he him doing that and continuing to play it. I mean, one is just kind of the dark comedy of this movie, but then two yes. is um, you know, so that way he had an alibi later uh, for the for the coffee poisoning because then uh, he goes. He's like, well, it could not have been me because while the coffee poisoning happened during your story, I was playing the piano. And then so, you know, uh, he, <laughs> he uh, you know, needed to cover his bases there. But then um, also for just, uh, yeah, the dark comedic effect of it. The hands in the close-up of Bob the Piano belong to those of director Quentin Tarantino. His hands also stand in for those of Joe Gage when the coffee pot is poisoned. This is not the first time Tarantino's hands have stunt doubled for the main actor's digits. QT's hands made their debut as Colonel Hans Lana's meat hooks when they choked Bridget Von Hammersmark to death in Inglorious Bastards. He also, viewers didn't keep count of the movie, but if you listeners, when you're watching this, if you keep count, Bob fucks up the song three times. <laughs> three times. Now one of them happens to not be his fault. It happens to be the exclamation of Warren saying that he killed Charles Smithers. That kind of throws Bob off and he has to start again. But he fucks up three times. 
but he eventually finishes the song. So those of you keeping track at home, Bob fucks up thrice time. I'll do the German three, three <laughs> times, three whiskeys. Now, Tarantino once again does a masterful job of lowering our defenses as we listen to this conversation because we have two bitter adversaries who, when we first meet them, oh God, it feels like 30 minutes prior, you know, that dinner scene, chapter three of the actual movie when we get to Minnie's haberdashery and everyone shows up, it is chock full of shit, like you said. Like, it is just, it's the longest chapter. It's got a ton of information in it. And one of the first is when he walks through the door, that being Warren, and Charles Smithers sees him, and they have their little back and forth where Chris Mannix is like their interpreter going back and forth because they want to talk to each other playing a game of telephone. And so when they're sitting down next to each other, across from each other, and they're actually having this meal, and it's kind of like a nice quiet, pleasant moment, and you're kind of like for, lulled for into For just a like, moment. Yes. For just a moment. You, you know, don't you, realize it's a slow-burning wick to a fucking piece of dynamite. I mean, in, in that in that moment, too, like, for it just being this brief moment is where you're reminded, like, how badass of an actor Bruce Dern is because, like, yes. he, he just subtly lets his face soften for that moment, too, and the way that he's speaking just, like, softens ever so slightly from what he's been doing the, you know, the rest of the movie. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, Bruce Dern, he still fucking got it, you know, still, he's still doing it. And, and, and I love what you said, um, you know, that Warren did not plan on, you know, coming to minis and killing this, uh, general, uh, no, this is one of the many, the movie is a interesting mix of, you know, things that are planned and preordained by people pulling strings, but then those plans being disrupted by just happenstance, by just, oh, like this just, you know, happened to, you know, he just happened to be there. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I see it as, you know, Warren is, you know, doing this scene, you know, making this uh, whole grand gesture just because he, uh, something needs to happen. Something needs to shake up this room, you know, and somebody needs to make a move. But, you know, nobody wants to actually make the moves themselves, you know, because everybody yeah. uh, there's a lot of uh, of accountability uh, running throughout this film. And so it's like, you know, nobody wants to make the first move. So Warren is just trying to shake up the room a little bit. And he uh, just sees an opportunity of going, oh, hey, it's that fucking super racist general that loves killing <laughs> people. Might as well, uh, you know, use him as my Trojan horse to to stir the room up and try to out somebody you know, for what's what's happening. The Battle of Baton Rouge was a grounded naval battle in the American Civil War fought in East Baton Rouge Parish, Louisiana, on August 5th, 1862. The Union victory halted Confederate attempts to recapture the capital city of Louisiana. Well, both Bruce and Samuel are absolutely fucking electric in this mm -hmm. moment together. But it's when he sets that fucking pistol down next to Sandy. I get so excited. I got excited the first time I saw it because I knew whatever Warren was about to say... Whatever story he was about to tell about the death of Charles, it was going to be a fucking good one. But I had no idea just how fucking crazy it was going to be. <laughs> I had no idea the route it was going to take and where it would end. Did you, when you first watched it, did you have any idea that it was going to go where it went? Oh, I I mean, I had no idea. Like, I mean, uh, you know, this the the movie. You know, the the monologues range from so many different topics and stuff. And uh, but yeah, like you you see him set the gun down. You know, obviously, you know, Tarantino's very aware of Chekhov's gun, so he goes, "Here yeah. you go, guys." Like, here we're gonna have him literally set it down and next to him. So I love that. 
Yeah, I remember watching this in theaters because uh, so me and me and somebody we we made a little road trip to go see the movie. We had to drive like three hours to see the uh, we wanted to see <laughs> the seventy the mil. Road show. Yes, so so we we made a nice little uh, journey to go. And so this scene comes right before, obviously, it comes before the the intermission part. And uh, there's an overture during the roadshow and was nice. But uh, so I remember this happened during intermission. And uh, so everybody that's in the bathroom is from this screening. Everybody's just giggling uh, as a, just, <laughs> a, just, a, just a room of 20 grown men peeing and giggling uh, after uh, this scene is just uh, super funny because I mean Sam Jackson is just I mean one of his, I think you know that like I mean obviously he gets a lot of attention for Pulp Fiction but Pulp Fiction is, is spread a little bit more thinly amongst uh, the the different ensemble versus like this is really his movie to shine for Tarantino and like this scene uh, you know Tarantino just you know knowing Sam Jackson so well and you know he writes these roles specifically for him in my Mind. And, you know, so by this point, they've done, uh, you know, multiple movies together. They understand each other's rapport. So it's like this scene was just perfectly written. He goes, you know, this is he he wrote this going, this is going to be Sam's shining moment. And he goes, <laughs> what other way to write this than having Sam Jackson delivering a monologue about someone sucking his dick? It's the most <laughs> Sam Jackson thing you can put in a Tarantino movie, like it, or, or vice versa. It's the most Tarantino thing that Sam Jackson could ever do do um it's just it's the perfect marriage of their working relationship like and sam jackson just knocks it out of the park absolutely fucking does and i don't know if you noticed but as warren's story gets better so does fucking bob's piano playing mm -hmm. he actually starts the fucking show off yeah because when I he first starts that. he's very like uh like plunky and then he fucks it up twice three times and then all of a sudden now he's putting flourishes in oh, there absolutely yeah. as he's totally <laughs> fucking going on so it lends a little credence to the fact that he's taunting general smithers in this mm -hmm. now it is chris mannix <laughs> who jumps in as the story begins to start because he knows exactly what warren is trying to to do. He is trying to get Sandy to grab for that pistol so he can kill his racist, murderous old ass. <laughs> and as I rewatch it, like I watched the thing about two, three times today. Usually on the third watch, I've stopped watching the foreground. I start looking in the background, especially if there's people. Mm -hmm. And you really only get Chris Mannix. And then when he, they do it again, where he stands up, uh, you get the reaction of John Ruth and you also see Daisy sitting there. But most of it, you can sometimes see Chris in the back and he know you can just see his face and just like, oh, he, he knows he's reeling him in. He knows he's hooking him, and he knows that there's nothing he can do about it because he knows that Warren has laid the trap for him, and if he goes for it, Warren will be within his right to shoot him, and he just knows he's just being led further down the path, and he's trying to save his beloved fucking hero from the war mm -hmm. from dying at the hands of Warren. The name of Major Marcus Warren is a tribute to writer and director Charles Marcus Warren, who specialized in westerns. For example, Little Bighorn from 1951 and Arrowhead from 1953. He also contributed in excess of over 250 articles of Pulp Fiction to various magazines. And it's also, you know, having Mannix mixed in with this scene, uh, one, I mean, fucking love Walton Goggins. Like, I mean, I'd always been aware of him, but this was the movie that I really was just like, this guy, yeah. I need him in everything. Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, and so, you know, his character is so 
interesting as his, you know, kind of moral allegiances sway throughout the film. Um, I mean, as he should, if he is, you know, hypothetically the the sheriff, as he says he is, and that's the the running gag between him and you know Warren throughout is, you know, like uh, <laughs> yeah. that Warren's like, ah, I don't know if you're the sheriff or not, and like so, you know, I love Mannix throughout the film has just this combination of like he does know what's going on, but he usually knows it for the wrong reasons because he's also a doofus, you know? So it's <laughs> yes. like, so yes. it alternates between that. Also, this altercation is also giving more details to Warren for him trying to, you know, figure out Mannix if he's truly the sheriff or not. Cause he's, you know, going through saying like, okay, if this plays out the way that I think it's going to, the old man's going to try, I'm going to shoot him. It's going to be self-defense. And if he's the sheriff and knows that, then he's not going to press me. So like, this is also where Warren is truly pulling out, you know, Mannix's uh, truth as well. And this is also where QT uses the words he writes and has Warren say (laughs) to describe Warren's little Warren are extremely intentional. He's not only using them to bait Smithers to grab for the gun, but he is also playing upon the fears and nightmares of all racist pieces Mm -hmm. of shit. Mm -hmm. And it is an absolute fucking joy. I could actually hear white folks' <laughs> assholes snap shut and clutching their pearls during the scene in the theater, and I loved every fucking moment of it. How did you feel the first time you saw the scene in the theater, not just in the bathroom? When he starts going in on using, like, I meant to count it, but he must use dingus and schlong and dick. In fact, Warren uses five euphemisms to describe his penis in this scene. They are, in order, Black Pecker, Black Johnson, Black Dingus, Dingus, and Johnson. The only one that throws me off is Johnson, because that feels like it's a 1990s term from the Big Johnson (laughs) t-shirts, but I'll let it slide. Big Johnson, created in 1988, is a brand known for its t-shirts featuring enormous Johnson, depicted in comic art featuring sexual innuendos. The etymology of how Johnson became a slang word for penis differs, but the Big Johnson t-shirts helped it spread in popularity in the 90s. He just like tries to find every word to just play on these people's fears and their insecurities and their ignorance, and it is just such a delightful, joyful scene if you're not one of those kind of people. I know, because I saw this in Kansas City, so it was most likely a product dominantly white crowd from what I can remember. And I was with my white friends. And I mean, it was, but it was, uh, you know, everybody was on, obviously on Warren's side and everybody, it was just like a whole lot of those, do you, do you hear what he's fucking saying? It was like kind of like those. <laughs> um, and, and what I love about it is like and how searing it is to, you know, the general as a character because, you know, for all the atrocities that he's done, the killing, probably the raping, all these things that he has done, unfazed by it, but like just the mere thought of, you know, this story <laughs> being true, you know, the, the story most likely is not true. And even he knows that, but it's, but is it's the general's pride though and yes. just the like that that the fact that you know out of everything he's done just the mere idea of this shakes him to the core and irks him so much and you really see it in Bruce Dern's eyes too as he's just you know his eyes are just slightly glazing over as you know as the story is being told you know it, it it's so satisfying it really is because I mean you're just watching this person squirm and he knows <laughs> that he's being toyed with and there's just nothing that he 
can do in the situation. Like when you are just that, you know, like, you know, checkmated literally. Yeah. I mean, it is just, it's so good, which is ironic because he was playing chess, you know, earlier in the, <laughs> in the film too. And now he you ain't whipping shit. In, yeah. You ain't whipping shit. And now he just got his ass whipped, you know, verbally, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, everything. <laughs> well, he's also wearing, and this is about anywhere from mm. eight to 12 years post-war is what I think, you know, some people, because there's no real time frame given, but mm -hmm. a lot of people have kind of said this about eight, anywhere from eight to possibly 12 years post-war. He's still wearing the suit of the Confederacy. Now, true, Warren has his overcoat, but he's not dressed as if he just got off a fucking horse on the Calvary. While some might wonder about a black man in the Union Army rising to the rank of major, the fact is that the highest ranking black soldier in the U.S. Army during the Civil War was Surgeon Alexander Thomas Augusta. He retired from the Army in 1866 with a brevet rank of Lieutenant Colonel, which is one step above a major. However, Smithers is dressed from head to toe in his Confederate Army gear. Still wearing the gear of the people who lost as if it's a, a badge of honor to have it on. So mm -hmm. there's a lot being said there. So he is easily baited in because of what he wears and who he wears mm -hmm. and what he's wearing it for. Mm -hmm. Now, <laughs> and, and, and that's where like things being so carefully detailed is like every sentence that Sam Jackson says, like that Warren says to him is so carefully placed. And part of that is, is like even in, in going into that moment where it's like, Oh, it seems like kind of like a nice moment. It's still not, it's him no. planting the seed instantly yep. when he goes, so how's life been for you after since the war? And really yep. what he's saying is like, how you doing? You fucking loser. You, you racist piece of shit loser. How, uh, how are you? But like presenting it in this actual, like, uh, you yeah. know, a uh, uh, manner that like, he's like, no, no, like, you know, how you been? How's your wife? Like yeah. all these things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but even just that one sentence planted the seed to, yep. to really get the snowball going. Yeah, he got him to lower his defenses. Exactly. Like it. So it's like each, you know, one. It really is like a, you know, a, it's like a fencing match, and each one yes. is different prod, a different slash, or whatever. Because like every single, the way that he ratches it up is just it's it's so perfectly paced in the way that this, this is written too. Because I mean, it's a, you know, it's a nicely length you know monologue but like it, it's not overdone though either like no. it, even though this gets to the indulgent part but it's indulgent for warren in that you know way to to really sell this to get the rise out of it so yeah he really screws in the bolt on him he really gets him in yeah but it's not too much it's not like this nope. scene goes on for like you know like uh you know 10 minutes or something like, i think start to finish so the full scene is 10 minutes now, that first flashback, so here's the great genius of this, what kind of we were speaking on, is when we jump to the flashback, it's Warren's face that we have seen. So these first flashbacks are Warren's POV of him remembering walking Charles in the snow. Now, I will say those fucking flashback scenes, they looked cold as fucking hell. They looked cold as Oh, yeah. Shit. I've seen some, some behind-the-scenes production stuff, and it was... It was not a good time making this movie. Like, I mean, it was, but it was not. Like, it was harsh. So, yes. I mean, that man, yes. uh, shout out to uh, that yes. actor who I don't even know his name. <laughs> his but name he... is Craig Stark, and he 
deserves not only props to playing Charles Smithers and walking his butt-ass naked through the fucking snow in snowshoes, but also for agreeing to go full frontal full down. and to simulate blowing Warren. He should, in my opinion, get an honorary Oscar just oh, we, we salute Craig big time. Um, <laughs> I'm, always an advo- I'm always an advocate for more dong in movies. You know, Well, Tarantino does a lot of dong. dong. He has had more full more frontal dong. than he's ever had nudity of women in his but movies. Yeah, I, his but, then the, but yes, the, the full simulation of of sucking Warren off is just, I mean, it is. <laughs> oh, man. That, it, and it, the, especially, like, I love how you know, um, then we get like, you know, the nice little fourth wall break of this is obviously a flashback. He's telling a story and we're seeing the flashback and then like, you know, and then cuts back to the him saying, you're seeing pictures, ain't you? But he's saying it to the camera, but yeah. he's real saying to a whole nice little yeah. uh, meta moment there too, uh, which I which I love. Well, that's the genius of it. So like I said, as we start the first flashbacks, Warren is the one who is front and center of the camera, and then they go to his remembrance of walking him. It's then, at this moment, he starts to talk about pulled out his big black Johnson. The camera cranes down from Warren's face towards his genitalia. The same time it dissolves on a crane shot from the top of Smithers' heads to his eyes and holds there, as it then soft dissolves to his son crawling on all fours through the snow, which is now we have flipped to what Mr. Smithers is imagining is happening. So from this moment on, if you at home, when you watch this again, watch this part, and from that moment on, the minute they do that crane, and now we're in Smithers' minds, everything that happens to include the mm. <laughs> the simulation of psychic dick happens in Smithers' mind, um, not in Samuel L. Jackson's mind. This is damn. Smithers imagining what is being told to him, imagining what it looks like or what his son is doing, which is why you get the great reactions from Bruce Dern, which I fucking love. Sean and I, who did the main episode we talked about, one of my favorite, <laughs> it's that where he just kind of blows air through his two persons. <laughs> like, like he just can't yeah. fucking handle it. And his it's like, it's so great. His face is like vibrating. Like yes. that's like all he's like doing. And, and it, which I, I love this. Like, you know, uh, I love that Tarantino goes, okay. Yeah. 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 I see what you see on the, uh, on the page. It's, it's him telling a story about making a guy suck his dick. Okay. That's ridiculous, but <laughs> I'm still going to fucking do this, you know, cinematically for you. And like the, the fact of, you know, uh, doing that is just, again, you know, Tarantino, uh, his versatility as a, as a storyteller and him again, like kind of the meta-ness of it, like, you know, him telling a story through this telling a story and like, you know, the, the many layers to it. Uh, so it's like, again, like <laughs> uh, a, a normal director would, you know, obviously just be like, oh, let me have this, uh, scene about second dick, but then, uh, you know, there's not only the, you know, emotional layers uh, put behind it, but then now the technicality on top of it um, is, you know, what really just puts this like a uh, tier above the rest. And and by the way, in my notes, I uh, titled this the snow job scene. Uh, <laughs> what, I, what I titled this one. As you're saying, there's also some subtext in there that he is quietly doing, which I think you and I talked about when we did Django. He quietly expresses his belief on things, and not only is he talking about a person sucking another person's dick, it's a white southerner racist sucking a black man's dick, being told to his racist southern father, 
still in full Confederate regalia, having to sit mm-hmm. there and listen. And what I love about it with Brewster's reactions we're talking about it, is he does he does a clutch the pearl moment when he he clutches the blanket, leans back as he's talking about it, and all, he did everything I said. He's just he's, I love Bruce Dern is brilliant in the he's in two full he's got two great scenes in two of the movies and he has that I mean he plays a real nasty even though it's quick and we talked about that real he's the Crucian farm uh, Crucian plantation owner in Django which you know he's the one who burns the runaway slave uh, marks on both their faces but man him in this and then also in Once Upon a Time which we'll talk about next month. Mm. Oh, he's just he's just brilliant in them. Like I remember him from The Burbs, and I loved him in that. But you know, you forget he was younger than by Jesus by thirty years. But you don't realize how amazing Bruce Dern truly is as an actor. Well, I say this about everyone: if you get into a Tarantino film, he brings out the, your creme de la creme. Like he, your cream rises to the top when you do a, a Tarantino film. He's getting two of Bruce Dern's best performances from him uh, in a chair. I mean, what? A chair and a bed. Uh, a, a chair and a bed. So, like, I mean, what is uh, amazing? There's, there's like, even, uh, I love there's, because, again, like, the general isn't saying much during this whole thing. It's mainly, you know, his facial expression. And then there's that one point where he's just pleading. It's just like, you don't know my boy. You don't know my and, boy. <laughs> and so it's like, at that moment, that is, again, him, you know, knowing yes. that this story is bullshit and just, uh, you know, thus proving again, it's like it, it doesn't even matter that it's like him talking about his son. It's no, no, no. The concept of, like you said, a black man's dick and a white man's yes. mouth. Yes, which Tarantino brings back that in is what chapter is, four. Yes, <laughs> love that. And after, oh. his, after captivating the audience about black dicks and white, white mouths. Oh, I remember I laughing, like actually LOLing in the theater when he came back with that because I saw it originally. I didn't get, there was no intermission, so we just went straight through. So Bob closes the piano. We go to black for a second. It comes up, and then he says that. It's just, it just fucking rings back. You just laugh your ass off because of. of is that, that Tarantino fucking... narrating? He's yes, narrating. Tarantino narrating. Oh, yes, sir. I, I couldn't oh, figure yes. out who the, who the voice was during that. I was like, "Who is this?" I was like, "Oh, interesting." Didn't didn't sound as much like him. Now, would you ever strip naked and let someone march you through the snow to keep you from being killed, or you just let them kill you right then and there and just say, "Fuck it, you're killing me right now." I'm not stripping naked. I'm not walking in the snow. You might as well just shoot me here because it's not happening. Or would you think that there's maybe a chance to save? yourself and then would you hmm. even after being walked for two hours of snow and you don't see a blanket because that's a great thing again this is like i said it's in the vision of bruce dern so we don't know but mm-hmm. marcus is not wearing or having a blanket anywhere on them so, so i don't true. know where he thought the blanket was coming from well so, i guess i guess i guess that is the maybe that's the horror of for the general too of the general already knowing that as well uh i mean i'm of two minds i suppose because yes if presented in that uh, one, yes, I know that that at that point, if somebody's asking you to do that, you know that is just for to demoralize you. you you're all right through. Like there, there is no uh, salvation that. So, uh, depending on my energy levels, because like I don't know, am I gonna bite his dick off? If I still got the energy, maybe. But like, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I'm not crawling through the snow for nobody, <laughs> motherfucker. Uh, now the piece of cheese in this trap for Mr. Sandy Smithers is when Warren, now he's finished his whole tale, and he's saying to him, are you going to let me sit here? And actually, let me actually reverse a little bit, because I forgot about the one reaction Dern does, and it's where I think this story may or may not actually hold the validity of being true. 
I do believe that Warren walked him in the snow. I believe he walked mm. him for two hours and collapsed him. I absolutely 100% believe this because of what he says. When he tells him that it's a liar's promise, just like those union outfits you decided to mm. not recognize. I do believe he tortured him because, like he says, the worst thing mm-hmm. he ever did was tell me he was your son. So I might believe that he made him suck his dick. Okay. Maybe he maybe he embellishes a little bit. Maybe he didn't make him do that. But there's a lot of things he probably did because he said he did everything I told him to do, which who knows what else it was, which I love. We just leave that out in the ether, which, once again, Bruce Dern's character is going to think about. But when he says that, re, when you mm-hmm. rewatch it again, all these facial expressions that we've been watching Bruce Dern give have been funny to us because we know the agony he's going through listening to this story and mm-hmm. what he's making and putting himself through thinking about it. But it's when he says it's a liar's promise that he was not going to ever get that blanket. The realization that comes over is Bruce Dern is reaping what he sowed at the Battle of Baton Rouge all those years before and what he did. The same level of inconsideration towards human life for someone of a different race is now fallen into his lap as well. He now knows at the moment that he's told this of what his son went through, that his son went through similar things that he put these soldiers do. Probably the soldiers got it a little quicker. I don't mean that in any like disregard for the fact that he mm-hmm. murdered all these soldiers. However, they were probably just shot. They get walked naked through the snow and then forced to suck this man, old man's dick. So they may have got it a little bit easier. They probably would have chosen the way they went as opposed to the way that Charles goes. Probably. Sometimes it's not just about what you say. It's how your face and your expressions mm-hmm. that sell things. Yeah, and yeah. his fucking expression in this is fucking genius. It's tantalizing. But it's that sudden realization it washes over him like a fucking warm wave and he's like oh it becomes crystallized he realizes that much like we talked about in Django where Django we both believe may have been the person responsible for the death the brutal death of D'Artagnan he realizes in that moment that his faux pas many years earlier is Mm -hmm. the reason his son met the demise that he met because of his father the sins of the father were taken out on the sun. And so it's just yeah. that moment where I put a lot of weight on that delivery of that line that sets him up. But the piece of cheese that sets the trap and springs it, and Warren knows it, is after he says, are you going to sit here, old man, with the black man? I'm not going to, I will never say that word, but with the black man who killed your son for two, three days, whatever. And then he goes, lick his Johnson, and he licks his fucking oh my lips, God. LL Cool J <laughs> style. That was it. Like, that is the that is it. He didn't have to do that, but it's, it's forcing him to once again. It's bad enough that he probably tortured him and murdered him, but it's throwing in that once more that not only did he have to suck a dick, but he had to suck a black man's dick. Mm-hmm. And knowing how we know about how Sandy Smithers feels about black people. And mm-hmm. that, boy, that was the yeah. nail in his fucking coffin. Like, there's nothing anyone yeah. could do. There's, I mean, Chris Mannix could have, only thing he could have done is jump the table and <laughs> grab the gun before the old man reached for it. He was fucking dead in the water. He didn't realize it. The, yeah, the, yeah I, I'm, I, I agree with you. Yeah, the, the torturing definitely happened for sure. And then, yeah, the dick sucking is, oh, that was the, all the extra uh, candy toppings and flavorings uh, to really dig it into, uh, into this racist piece of shit. <laughs> but then also, 
also the line too, like right before he said it too, that uh, really springs it, it, that just seals the deal. Cause again, like every line, every is <laughs> just like a, it's like a slash. And like, this is the one to the jugular when he says the dumbest thing he did was letting me know he was your boy. Yes. And then for, and like how you said, like that is, you know, the, the full circle of being like, you know, your son met this fate because of you. Like, yes. this is your fault. I did this because of you. And like, that's, you know, and then that's whenever he springs for the gun. It's just, it's so perfectly calculated. <laughs> yes. Like, man, it's so good. Drops him like third period French. He drops him freaking fast. And I loved it. Now, did you know that in earlier drafts of this script, and we kind of talked about this on the main podcast. So those of you who listen to the main podcast, thank you. And I don't know why would you listen to this without listening to that one first. But hey, do it in the order you want to do. Do it Tarantino style. But the death of General Sanford Smithers was more graphic and brutal. He was actually blown into the fireplace yeah. and catches fire. Basically, Warren forces him to let him burn and eventually lets him put them him out when it starts to look like he may catch the cabin on fire. Uh, I'm glad they didn't do it that way because... When he goes into the fireplace, it doesn't add anything else to it. It just makes it, it's just adding insult to injury. I don't think it adds anything else. Now we're just burning him. We get the point. You've already set the stage and got the revenge on this racist piece of shit by telling us the story, whether it is true or not, that you forced him to suck your dick. Mm-hmm. The fire doesn't, uh, this is worse. Like the fire would be better. I'd rather be, mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I'm Smithers, if I'm the person I am, if I'm him, being shot into the fire is better than learning that my son had to suck a black man's like If I'm that guy in the wool racist, I would not want to hear that if that's who I am. So being shot into the fire would be so much better than having to ever have to think that my son was forced to do horrible things like that. So again, and then when he goes into the fire, I don't, I don't know if it adds anything. What do you think? I mean, the horror fan in me obviously wants it. Yes. Uh, just for, just for the, the, the extra. Oomph. But I, I would say it would help in one angle, but then it would take power away from a later scene. Um, because it would, it would, I think, enhance it as far as it being, you know, this, the statement on the bigger picture. You know, this this general is here because he uh, specifically yes. was a general during the Civil War. Deep seated racism. He, you know, had specific pension for you know killing black soldiers. You know, so like you know, as far as like what he represents, you know, so doing that and having imagery of him burning, which is you know something that obviously the KKK does yes. as, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. for their fear tactics. So it would be kind of turning it on its head a little bit in that angle to as far as you know like. Really Really, yes, the, the statement has been made uh, for, you know, the for the character in this movie. But as far as if you really wanted to hammer home like a bigger idea with it, I think it would have been fitting. However, the, the fact that you mentioned that, uh, you know, everybody wants to put him out, but he says, no, let him burn until like it gets to a point to where like they need to put him out. I mean, it would mirror, but I think it would kind of take away from the end whenever, you know, Mannix is about to he's about to shoot her and then. And, you know, uh, Warren goes, no, don't shoot her. And then it, you know, he brings her yeah. back around. It's like, you know, no, she deserves to hang. And like, yeah. you know, this whole running motif there. So, I mean, it kind of would have planted the seed for that idea. But then if we had already seen it earlier in the movie, then at the end, it wouldn't have had the impact yeah. that it does for for the ending. I like your your rationale for both. Yeah. So I could I can see it either way. Now, there are many theories regarding the authenticity of Major Marcos Warren's claims to General Sandy Smithers about the torture, assault and death of his son. Many fans do agree that it is true that 
Warren did in fact kill his son, but actually did so in self-defense, since after all, he had a bounty on his head from the entire mm. South, and didn't torture him in the way he said he did. They believe that Warren may have very well embellished the story to anger Smithers enough so he would try to pick up the gun and shoot him. Some fans even speculate that Warren may have never even been responsible for the death of Smithers' son at all, but simply made the entire story up to anger and enrage the general. Of course, QT has obviously left viewers to make their own interpretations. Now, what is your take on this? Real or part fairy tale? Um, I, I think it's I think it's the the mixture of the both, kind of what we had mentioned, because you know, again, with just how meticulous each thing that he is saying is, I think it's you know, it's it's too it's too meticulous to be just a you know fully spun lie, because then then the details wouldn't matter, you know, to the things that he's saying. So the the fact that there are uh, you know, certain particular details that he is saying in the setup to this, you know, scene, you know, implies, like you said, that at least the, I think the, I think the killing and uh, torture part is true. Um, I think it's just uh, the blowjob part is the, the, the not true part. If the whole story was untrue, I feel like it would be too thin, you know, and yep. this scene wouldn't be the centerpiece scene that it is. Like it, <laughs> This literally is the scene that closes out the first act. So it's yep. like, um, it's the yeah, first act of violence in an hour and a half plus. Mm-hmm. It, we finally break that cherry. Yeah. So I don't think um, it would be, you know, as significant of a scene as it was if the whole thing was a lie. Because even so, because like once it gets to the blowjob part two, and I know, you know, it said like at this point, this is when it's in the general's point yep. of view. But even still, like when it gets to this part, like, I mean, you know, Sam Jackson is getting so much more animated at this point yes. of the story, you know, and like, I mean, his face, his, his face gets cartoonish yep. uh, in the, in the glee that he has in describing this part. So like, that's how I'm like, okay, yeah, the blowjob part, that's, that's not true. But I, I totally believe the, the torture and killing part. I'm in agreement with you because otherwise, if it's not true at all, what we're saying then is with all the chaos that is happening in what would be considered chapter three in the actual film, the chapter 11 is talking about the DVD, Blu-ray, digital, where you would find the scene. In chapter three, when he meets him and they have their whole little back and forth. So from that moment on, because now he's with John Ruth, he's helping him secure people's weapons. They're having dinner, they're having the whole discussion, so he would have had to come up with a bullshit story in his mind to then parlay and tell the old man. I truly believe that he Came up to find Warren. He met his demise at Warren, and Warren did march him. Maybe, you know, maybe found out who he was, this and that. And once he found out that he was his son, like he said, he truly did torture him. Now, again, I'm in with you. Maybe the blowjob is bullshit. You know, most likely it is because he does embellish it a bit. But everything else, I think, is factual. I think he tortured him, maybe even worse than making him suck a dick. Mm-hmm. But I think he knows that what would be worse in General Smithers' mind, which will get him to go for the gun, because he, once he sees him, and now, and I'm going to tell you why I believe he also did this in a second. Once he sees him and has made the decision, he knows that the only way for this to happen, for him not to be a murderer, is he has to get Smithers to grab the gun. And so he's going to mm-hmm. tell him the story, the true story of how his son died, except he's going to add in a little cherry on top to make him grab the gun, and that is <laughs> Black Dick's in White Mouse. And that's what gets him. But there's no other way that he just sat there all of a sudden out of the blue after being outed as a liar and was like, oh, I'm going to make up the story to shoot this old man out of the blue. You know what I mean? Like, that's too far-fetched. That's that's bad writing on Tarantino's part, if that's mm-hmm. the truth. Because it makes no sense then. I do believe that he actually ran into Smithers. Yeah. We set it up. I mean, because even Mannix, when we were in the carriage, talked about the mystique of Warren and that people went headhunting for him. Mm-hmm. And when we do do the flashback, mm-hmm. he says, 
said that his son came up here looking for fortune, and if he had found what he was looking for, he'd have been rich. So without saying it, there's a lot there. Yes. The story is like the scenario in general. It's a, a mixture of, you know, coincidence, but then it's Warren, you know, taking that coincidence and turning it into an opportunity to be like, okay, like now I can, you know, kind of take control of the situation yes. here while I can also shame this fucking racist piece of shit <laughs> and rub it all in his face. And uh, yeah, like, did he come out setting out to do that? Nope. But uh, now that he's got to, uh, can't, can't pass that up. The yep. perfect uh, scapegoat for the, for the entire situation, you know, it would have been, yeah, just uh, a little too, because if the entire thing was made up then this whole situation the the like you know warren's decision would just feel more convenient yes it wouldn't feel driven and motivated like it truly is you know by his yep. character so yeah it, that part has to be true and it is a bit of convenience and i'll explain so myself and sean talked about this on the main podcast i know he's listening hello sean and what we discussed is this is a scene that he did not like he did not like that warren kills Smithers. I guess he forgot that the name of the movie was The Hateful Eight, so they're all hateful bastards. But we do <laughs> fall in love with Major Mark West. Like, we do. Like, from the minute we meet him, we're in love with him. He's the first person we meet. We like him. It's Samuel L. fucking Jackson, first off. And we're happy he's no longer Steven. You know, like, I think <laughs> as fans, we're like, alright, he's not Steven, so we're back on the We Love Sam train. And he did this it's very calculated. Now, when he showed up, I don't think he had any intention of killing the old man, or at least not right away. But it's the dinner table sequence that forces him to now take information he has and use it for his benefit. Mm -hmm. When Chris Mannix outs him as having made up the Lincoln letter. In the script's first draft, which was leaked, the Abraham Lincoln letter is only brought up once in the stagecoach and is never mentioned again. In interviews, Tarantino explains that he always intended to make more of it than that, but wasn't ready yet. He wanted to spend more time with the material and let the story slowly evolve in the two subsequent drafts that would follow. The man in his corner up until that point, since the minute they got in the carriage, especially since Mannix joined the carriage, has been John Ruth. John Ruth is extremely upset because mm -hmm. he was lied to and he makes a little racial comment about it. Warren realizes immediately that John Ruth is no longer mm -hmm. in his camp. He knows that mm -hmm. now he is the only black man also in this company. And he knows that there are a few of them, quite a few of them, who are anti him. And he's not 100% sure that John Ruth likes him outside of the fact that John Ruth liked Lincoln. So he must be a friend of Lincoln. So by association, I'm going to like Warren. Warren's got a big mythology out there. Mm -hmm. So I think he decided at this moment, I need to take the power back. Oh, 100%. I need to show everybody, just like Django, I am not that motherfucker. It's a fuck around and find out moment. And that's what it was. So he went mm -hmm. over there to make it evident not to fuck around. And how I can kind of almost prove that. When he shoots Smithers and Smithers goes down and he puts his gun in, he turns to everybody at the dining room side and he gives them a smile. Almost like everything you heard and everything I just said, it's fucking true. Test me, bitches. That's basically, that's the, the, the smile is to even John Ruth. Test me. You're handcuffed to a bitch. You got a gun. And I respect you, mm -hmm. but I'm the fastest draw in here because everyone else doesn't have weapons. So I think you should be back on my side because if you want to make it out of here with this $50,000 or $10,000 bounty, you need me, motherfucker. I'm the king. I'm the king shit in this fucking room. Everyone knows this because I will fuck anyone else up. I mean, from that moment on, he does anyways. I mean, from that moment on, he becomes like for, you know, that first half of the movie, we're kind of like dancing around like, who the fuck's who? Who's what? What's going to happen? And as soon as he does that, we're like, okay, Samuel L. Jackson 
is mm-hmm. the fucking man. He is in charge here. Everyone else is a side character at this moment on. And from that moment on, he really does. You know, obviously, we get the poison of the coffee and that changes. But boom, as soon as that happens, he takes charge. He's in it. He becomes the character that this movie is kind of based off of the thing. He becomes the McCready of the film in that moment. He takes charge mm-hmm. and he is now McCready. Even though the real McCready who played him is in the room, he becomes McCready. He's like, once, you know, it's like once we've realized that there's an alien in the dog thing, he comes in with the you know, the flamethrower, it's like, nope, I'm in charge now. And all the rest of it, that's, you know, when we hold him up against the wall later on, it's the same thing like the blood test in the thing. He has completely become fucking McCready in the thing. Tarantino has said that his two primary cinematic influences on this film were The Thing and Reservoir Dogs. This film was his metaphoric way of breaking down his feelings about how he felt after seeing The Thing for the first time. In fact, The Thing was the only movie he showed to the cast during pre-production. Damn. And then John is Keith David's character now. Oh, yeah, shit. Yep. Love that little parallel there. Thank you. I was going to say, uh, have you ever watched those... Uh... Do you remember the real world road rules challenges? Yes. Feels very much like that. Like uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, the, the two heavies are now split and they got to, yeah. you know, because, <laughs> yes. you, you know, because Warren's one heavy and then, you know, John's the other heavy. And now they're split, you know, like you said, after the, the trust was broken. So it was uh, all right. But who's going to be the top dog now? You know, like, so it's funny because then every time you were mentioning the bounty, yes. I just kept thinking like, you know, who's going to be uh, who's going to get this uh, $50,000 grand prize with me, huh? Now, when you actually saw the movie, did you see this scene taking the turn it does and playing out like it does? I mean, when it starts, what was your first thought? Because he starts off with the talk. There mm-hmm. are two main points. When he sits down to talk with him, what was your thought? And then when he put the gun down, where did you think, oh shit, where's this headed? I mean, I knew because obviously, like you said, the, the hateful eight, uh, you know that these are, uh, you know, it's the, the whole movie is about, you know, this boiling tension. It's about these power shifts and dynamics. Um, so so I guess I could get, I could have a sense just by being like, okay, we're kind of coming up on the halfway mark and uh, we still got all eight of these motherfuckers. Uh, and I know damn well we're not going to end the movie with all eight of these motherfuckers. You know, so, so I knew um, as soon as this was going on, it was like, okay, somebody's going to die. Who's it going to be? But then it's made pretty clear who it's going to be. And then it's just like, so that's, you know, Tarantino kind of playing with your expectations as you're watching it. You're like, okay, like I know someone's going to die. Who's going to be okay. Now he's told me who it's going to be, uh, but he's still going to hold out on, you know, like, okay, when's it going to happen? You know, what's going to, what's it going to be? That's going to set him off. Uh, and like literally goes through the entire checklist before being like, okay. And now you get your first death of the movie, <laughs> you know, like he, he, he was, he was tickling our taints there a little bit and being like, all right, like, and now, and then being like, aha, now I'm going to put this in mission here you gotta wait uh until you know until you come back to to see uh the the follow-up of what just happened and and then now you know the second act of the movie that's when things you know really uh kind of start Ratchet rolling up. and the the i forgot how much blood is in the second half of this movie like god damn <laughs> so many people don't give this movie enough credit it is such a great slow burn it is so well paced so well written and that little shot sets it off and then the black dicks and white mouse and Domergue's got a secret and then you're like oh fuck it's you know he's done the old Hitchcock bomb under the table he's shown us the fucking bomb and now we've got to figure out when it's going off and then we're watching people walk around the coffee pot and they drink it but it's all set up from this moment he's pushed us he's ratcheted up and then 
Bam. He hits us with it, and we think, okay, we're going to go from here. And then it's like, it just fucking goes, and it's so brilliant. I know it's such a taste thing. Um, I know I've noticed uh, for people that this particular style doesn't always work for people um, whenever it's those movies that are obviously it's like, this could be a stage play, you know, like yes. this should be this should be on a stage and should be done. This and in Reservoir Dogs are both two that could be on the stage. And, and boiled down even, even, you know, even more concentrated than Reservoir Dogs, you know, because Reservoir Dogs can still get like a little bit outside of yep. uh, the the main location, but it's like this one. I mean, for the most part, everything is here. And then like, yeah, you're either even, in the stagecoach for the most part, or you're in the room. And we do like one brief moment out in the snow. Exactly. So it's like um, I, I know just for for a lot of people, it's like some people don't like that. They're just like, oh well, if I wanted to watch a stage show, I'd watch a stage show. You know, like why why put this in film form? But you know, this works because it's Tarantino. Yes. And even when you are in this like you know small claustrophobic space you're still getting you know very cinematic things happening in this tight little spot which i really love like there is still a lot of the background stuff that uh you're you're not going to catch if uh you, if you were watching this in a in a stage you know if you're watching this in a theater uh you are just focused you know in on the performances versus like you know tarantino is like you know i'm still giving you that but like hey also um you know keep you keep your attention in the corners here i got some stuff going on in the background too and yep. you know and uh, and with the sound cues, the way they use the sound and the and the music throughout this uh, as well, the the score is almost horror esque. Yes, uh, it's a it's yes. very. It's very, it's a, like it has those Western motifs, but it's very sinister as well. And, uh, and so it's like you, you get those things from this too. So it's like, it's, yep. it's still more than that, but like, I would love to see, uh, how this would work on a stage. Well, if you're a fan of the thing, then you have to be a fan of this because there's a lot of parallels mm -hmm. and it's not, you know, once I started and watching rope, again and, and rope, like you said too, yeah. Uh, yeah. the, with the, the, the body and the, and, yes. the, and the thing, uh, very, very similar to that too. Now, before I let you go. Your feeling on this scene, where does it rank for you in the scenes that we have, you know, we've had in Tarantino land? I mean, like you said, it is a very pivotal moment in this film. It, it's the first firework as the finale starts, right? Like it's that you've had the little fireworks go up and then this is the first big explosion that all of a sudden kicks off the finale. So where does mm -hmm. this scene rate for you and how did you enjoy it in this film? Yeah, I mean, this scene is, it's got just a little bit of everything. It does, it, it not only, you know, bangs home a lot of things for the narrative and like really kicks things in gear and uh you know changes the tides uh in in such a big way but then again like i i just love that um this is you know uh sam jackson getting you know finally getting a real big moment in a tarantino movie again and like you know really doing it uh the only way that sam jackson could i mean just uh, uh the, the 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 lines i mean his eyes the way that he tells the story you know i mean you know sam jackson could you know read you his laundry list he's you know he's one of those kind of guys and yep. One of the imagery, the uh, the lines that really got to me whenever he's like, he's like, as I put my bass Johnson in his throat, he goes, he goes, and it was full of blood, so it was warm. <laughs> yeah. I was like, ah, I was like, God damn, like, this, the, like that that combination. I was just like, it, like it, that's it, why he pursed his lips, was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I mean it's just it, like this is the moment for Sam Jackson who not gonna lie up through the up through the first half of the movie, you know, I'm I can't take my eyes off of John Ruth. Um, you know, yes. 
Kurt Russell in this movie. God yes, first half of the movie, he is just a fucking, <laughs> he's just a bear and a gorilla stomping tray. through things. Yes, he is. As he says, You're, you, sir, are a jackal. <laughs> he I mean, is. he is a freight train. So, like, so, again, like, I mean, just, uh, you know, the big power dynamic shift. I mean, like, Warren has been you know, great through the first half of this movie, too, but, like, he's really been wrestling with John Ruth, and it's, like, up to that, and then this is the point where he's, like, no, I'm snatching it away. We are not mm-hmm. doing this co-lead shit anymore. Like, this is my show now, and, like, and this is, you know, Sam Jackson taking the reins of the movie, yeah. and then, you know, running with it the, the rest of the way as, you know, Kurt Russell dies, you know, not, what, 20 minutes later? So, yeah, yeah the, it, it was really great to uh, rewatch this, uh, you know, for the first time since I saw it in theaters, and uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. This is uh, underrated. So it's gonna go up. It's gonna get a couple bumps up my uh, Tarantino ranking list for sure. And uh, but as far as like ranking this as uh, some of those you know big pivotal uh, Tarantino scenes, it's uh, it's just great on you know both both levels of yeah. you know. Being, having the narrative impact, but just uh, the the entertainment factor as well. So I mean, it's it's up there. Like this is a great Tarantino set piece. And Samuel Jackson does it without saying one motherfucker in it. Imagine that. Damn. Imagine Samuel Jackson doing oh. a full monologue oh. about people sucking his dick, and he doesn't say motherfucker. <laughs> And that will do it for a Bible study this month. Once again, I would like to thank my special guest, Devon Taylor, host of the Spectre Cinema Club podcast, for joining me today. Now, you can find the link to Devon's podcast and the show's socials in the show's notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. So join me again in two weeks as Craig Cohen, musician and podcast host of Conversations from Jack Rabbit Slims, the Slycast, and Big Screen Book Club, makes his triumphant return for the final worship service episode of season one as we sit down to dissect and discuss Tarantino's love letter to 1960s Hollywood with his ninth film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So until next time, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.